Welcome to the Human Data Era, special edition podcast series produced by the Scientists Creative Services team. This series is brought to you by Amgen, a pioneer in the science of using living cells to make biologic medicines. They helped invent the processes and tools that built the global biotech industry and have since reached millions of patients suffering from serious illnesses around the world with their medicines. By studying human genetics, scientists discovered mechanisms that, when defective, cause disease. While this type of data is powerful, additional information can provide more insight on the human condition. Researchers and clinicians can now go beyond genetics, combining proteomics, metabolomics, transcriptomics, and environmental factors into a broad category of human data. In the series, Ray Deshays, Senior Vice President of Global Research at Amgen, explores the potential of human data and the important transition scientists and clinicians are making to incorporate this wealth of information into drug research and development. Heterogeneous disorders such as cardiovascular disease have multiple risk factors, causes, and manifestations. Having a holistic view of a patient's unique biology potentially leads to earlier and better treatment options. In this episode, I talked to Dr. Nariman Honarpour, Vice President of Global Development at Amgen, about how human data is helping drug developers and clinicians unpack the complexities of cardiovascular disease to improve patient outcomes. Hi, Nariman. I'm so happy you're able to join me today. You know, we've known each other going way back to the early 2010s when you were a postdoc in my lab at Caltech. I remember you coming into my office about 10 years ago to talk about two job offers, one from Amgen and another from a university. Of course, being an academic myself at that time, I encouraged you to take the academic position, but you'd have nothing of it and you joined Amgen. The irony is that five or six years later, I followed you to Amgen myself. Any regrets for the path not taken? Oh, absolutely not. Thanks so much for inviting me to your podcast today, Ray. I think it had been really a pivotal moment for me in in my career development and trying to understand how I was going to apply what I knew to what I was passionate about. And, you know, that for many of us in the life sciences is translating the basic science to bench side medicine. So no regrets. I think one of the great things that's come out of it is we've still had an opportunity to work with each other very closely, albeit in a very different set of circumstances. But um, I reflect on that conversation myself from time to time. I was looking for mentorship, and you asked a very important question. Why make this change? Why now? And I just felt in me that there was a different set of skills, a different way that I could realize that passion. You took your medical degree training as a cardiologist. And then in my lab, you were doing basic research on reprogramming stem cells to form heart muscle cells. And then when you went to Amgen, you went into global development, working on cardiology clinical programs. So you have a perspective on heart disease that spans fundamental research, clinical development, and patient care. With that broad view that you have, What do you think is the most significant challenge to developing cardiovascular medicines? The most significant challenge has been appreciating the heterogeneity in the disease. As a practitioner, I'd learned to recognize the condition on the basis of what I saw. 
Now, in scientific parlance, we might call that the phenotype of the patient or the phenotype that comes from the disease. But it wasn't until I got into drug development that I really understood deeply the heterogeneity in cardiovascular diseases and the difficulty that imposes on drug development. It's tempting to consider cardiovascular diseases as a plumbing problem, right? A vascular issue with the pipes. It's not until, again, that I got into drug development that I understood that so much of what we're regarding as a plumbing problem is actually driven by the interplay of multiple metabolic pathways, the different environmental effects that impact those pathways in people differently. And all of this results in things like different responses to drugs and efficacy that we see in the cardiovascular space. So it's a far more complex disease than I think many people give credit. Do you think there's something unique that makes cardiovascular such a difficult target for drug development? It gets back to that point of heterogeneity. And it's not just heterogeneity as to the causal factors, but it's differences in the metabolic pathways and the systemic pathways that affect cardiovascular diseases. The management of blood pressure physiologically is one system's pathway. What drives that system's pathway is a multitude of other molecular pathways. And each of us have a different fingerprint when it comes to the drivers of hypertension, how we respond to the hypertension, how it results in cardiovascular events. We know relatives, friends, loved ones that seem to have high blood pressure for a long period of time, and they seem to be just fine. But then there's the opposite case, a person who has seemingly modest blood pressure issues, and they may have a lot of consequences that come from that. You can then zoom out of the blood pressure system and think about things like lipid management, and you find the same phenomenon happens. You can zoom out further, and you can talk about things like obesity. And there are people that have significant problems with weight, but some of them appear comparatively well versus others that don't fare well at all and have an awful course of disease as a result of that. So the challenge is trying to figure out who is going to develop what condition and what is their major driver of cardiovascular risk. We haven't been able to do that effectively in the field. We've developed new tools. We've characterized the diseases better, but our predictive capabilities are still very much near the beginning stages. We've all been taught that there's two main things that contribute to diversity, nature and nurture, right? So what's in your genes and what you've been exposed to in your environment. How do you think those play out in this heterogeneity, given two sources of heterogeneity, both nature and nurture? What do you see as a role for using human genetics and other human data to get at this challenge? You're hitting on two significant sources of that challenge with the genetics. We appreciate that there's a variability in the genetics and how that impacts the incidence of disease, the start of the disease process, and how there are impacts of the environment on genetic expression, right? And then there's what happens once a person actually has the disease which may not be so much driven by the genetics anymore. In other words, you may have a risk to develop a particular condition on the basis of your genes. You develop that condition, and then a whole host of other pathways come into play. And these are expected physiologic responses to having that condition or that disease. And that then impacts the degree and course of disease progression. All of these things lead into heterogeneity in response. I believe that it is absolutely necessary for us to apply human data to understand the heterogeneity of cardiovascular diseases. 
we can understand not only the role of particular targets and genes and the incidence and progression of disease. Once the disease is set in motion, we can characterize things like biomarkers, proteomic assessments, transcriptomic assessments, understand how those changes are influencing that particular person's biology. We are using genetics more and more to identify targets of interest. This helps us determine which drugs would have a higher probability of success in treating a particular condition. Genetics has a role in also understanding a person's risk and the first detection of a particular disease. That might be more driven by a person's nature composition rather than the nurture composition or environmental effects. It's understanding the risk of developing a particular disease for the first time and also understanding what particular biologic pathways we could interdict to treat those diseases. Okay, how about proteomics? Is that going to give me a different axis on disease? Absolutely. Contrasting that to genetics, where you'd have a risk of developing a particular condition, proteomics could be the channel that we use to understand what happens after you've developed that disease. And those pathways are set into motion that impact the progression of our cardiovascular diseases. So when it comes to rate of progression, or how severe the disease is going to be for you once you develop it, those are areas that I think proteomics will have an outsized role. And it may be that we identify novel drug targets there as well. When you talk about cardiovascular disease and therapy for cardiovascular disease, you often break it down into a primary prevention versus secondary prevention, where primary prevention is preventing you from having that first heart attack, and secondary prevention would be a therapy designed to spare you from having a subsequent heart attack. Can you talk about how primary and secondary prevention relate to incidence versus progression and what types of human data are most informative for each of those stages of disease? Primary prevention is predicated on this concept that I can determine who has a particular disease. Diseases don't happen categorically, and they typically don't happen overnight with the flip of a switch. These are biologic processes that have been at play and interacting with the environment and with each other for years. It takes a lot of that type of exposure and time to get to incident disease. That time period up to the incident disease, I call primary prevention. If we think about what it means for a patient once they've had the diseases, we appreciate that very similar things are happening except it may be happening at an accelerated course. The person's had a heart attack. What's going on in those particular patients before their second one or consequences or complications of that first event? Human data give us an opportunity to really rarefy what happens in both of those categories. There is a wide distribution of patient risk profiles that reside within primary prevention. We're not all the same group of people when you're thinking about a primary prevention group. And similarly, we're not all the same group of people when you're talking about a secondary prevention type of study. And again, this gets back to the root of one of the major challenges in addressing chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease. How can I identify the young person that is going to have a significant cardiovascular event early in her life relative to someone else who isn't going to have one until at least age 65? Really, we don't have that capability today for except a couple of clinically measured biomarkers. Lipids are an example of that. That's not the whole story of what predicates risk for, for a particular patient. So human data, for me, 
really helps us break down those groups. Who is the high-risk patient? Irrespective of this somewhat arbitrary categorization on the basis of whether they've had an event or didn't have an event. One thing that strikes me as an important limit of human data is that people may not visit their doctor until it's too late. I'm sure you you know many people, I certainly know people, who only started monitoring their health very closely only after they had a heart attack or some other traumatic medical experience. We can look at a patient's genetics and proteomics and measure various markers of disease at that point, but that misses the window of opportunity for primary prevention if they've already had a major event. Some risk factors, such as high cholesterol, can't be felt. They can't be perceived, so people may be reluctant to see their doctor to treat that condition because they don't feel its effects. How can we get around that stumbling block? Feeling the disease is always going to be a compelling reason to seek treatment for a disease, right? So I think it will always be a problem with the right level of education and ingraining the practice of measuring these types of things into medical practice, we can overcome this issue. Cardiovascular disease, there's room to improve how we motivate people to seek wellness as opposed to treat their disease. We need to gear our medical system toward that mindset as well. And if you can name one area in cardiometabolic disease where human data has the best potential to transform patient care and patient outcomes, what do you think that'll be? There's the nearest opportunity where I think it will translate into benefit and effects. And then I think there's what I would call the biggest opportunity. And that one might be further out. I'll start with the nearest one. So I think there's still a lot that we need to learn about ischemic heart disease. It's not simply driven by an LDL cholesterol problem. We're starting to learn about other lipoproteins and other determinants of cardiovascular risk that may make us treat patients differently and with different care pathways. When you think about a disease like oncology, we oftentimes tailor the person's treatment to what we understand uniquely about their tumor. This is a remarkable advantage that cancer therapeutics have over cardiovascular disease where we're trying to affect a heterogeneous disease with some very broad brushstrokes like managing your blood pressure or reducing your LDL cholesterol. There's much more to it than that. Because we have a lot of access to data and we happen to understand that disease very well, comparatively, the nearest opportunity for the application is going to be an ischemic heart disease. The biggest potential impact is with obesity. This is an incredibly heterogeneous area. There are vastly different outcomes that people with obesity have, ranging from diabetes to liver disease to heart disease to none of the above. And I don't think we really understand that at all. There's a lot of important biology that is driving that heterogeneity and response. Many in the scientific arena are regarding obesity as an overarching condition that needs to be managed and tied into other diseases, I personally consider obesity a label of convenience. It's really the outward appearance of a variety of metabolic disorders. Some of those disorders will respond favorably or disproportionately to things like reduction in adiposity and weight. Others will not so much be dependent on weight reduction, but other things that we modify in patients who happen to be obese and therefore have a certain metabolic predilection that results in cardiovascular events. A lot of people 
hesitate to consider it a disease. They consider it a lifestyle choice. There's clearly a lot of data showing that propensity for obesity has significant genetic roots. Trying to get people to eat less and exercise more, frankly, just doesn't work. Because once you change the body's set point for mass, it's almost impossible to reverse that in a long-term stable way. We know this is an epidemic in the United States, and that's clearly a risk factor for having a cardiovascular event. How do you think this is going to evolve from both a regulatory and from a payer perspective? In the future, we're going to have to be far more serious about how we consider and manage obesity as a disease and how we cover obesity medicines for patients that have this condition. And I I do think that we're going to be in a position to treat people more precisely with medicines that are tuned to them. So it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all therapy. The consequences of the condition are far too grave to ignore. There's no way that one can defend considering obesity as a lifestyle choice. You raised an important point about this concept of set point, and that is a biological mechanism. Our body responds perhaps initially to something in our environment and it may result in having gained some weight, our body responds by fixating on that set point. That's a physiologic response. And it becomes impossible to lose weight durably and to get back to where people had been before. Obesity then spawns off a number of other metabolic derangements that end up impacting your cardiovascular health. To affect the biology, we're going to have to have impactful medicines that interdict the different pathways that not only result in obesity, but importantly, affect the consequences that come from that obesity, whether it's avoiding the incident diabetes, avoiding cardiovascular effects, avoiding heart failure, avoiding liver disease. We really have to flush that out. We're at the beginning of this story, nowhere near the middle or end. Zooming out a bit back to more broadly cardiometabolic disease, What's your top findings emerging out of human data in terms of either their impact to date on cardiometabolic medicine or their potential impact in the future? A remarkable observation founded in human genetics. People had identified variants in PCSK9 that influenced LDL cholesterol. There are patients with particular mutations that were recognized as having familial hypercholesterolemia, a genetic condition that results in high LDL cholesterol levels. That led to the development of an entirely novel class of medications, PCSK9 inhibitors. That happens to be, I believe, the most common monogenetic disorder in the population. So those for sure had profound impacts on the development of cardiovascular therapies and the management of cardiovascular diseases. Surely there are going to be more targets in the future. There are going to be other channels of data that we need to look through to identify other targets. The other limitation has been the sensitivity of the tools that we use to uncover those insights. We're starting to see improvements in those technologies, whether it's in proteomics, genomics, transcriptomics, or otherwise, that will help us uncover new targets. It may not always be as simple as inhibiting something at the end of the day. We may have to be more sophisticated in terms of what we do with those targets that we discover. But I do think that there are a lot more of them out there. Coming from the point of view of human genetics and human data, where do you hope 
to see the field 10 years from now? I hope the approach to managing a person and their cardiovascular risk will be far more personalized than it is today. If you look at the developments of the medicines that we've had, we apply them in broad brushstrokes. I'll take an example of, of a person who nominally comes in at high cardiovascular risk. Let's say they had a stress test and it was positive, but they aren't necessarily requiring a cardiac intervention at this stage. You know, you, you put them on a, a classic series of medicines that will help manage their blood pressure, manage their lipids. Depending on the risk category, you may put them on antiplatelet agents as well. That's something that we apply broadly across all patients as if they're the same. I hope 10 years from now, we'll be able to do better than that based on a person's biology, their proteome, their genomic composition as well, identify the particular channels of residual risk that are going to be the major drivers of cardiovascular events for them based on this holistic category of, are you a primary prevention patient or a secondary prevention patient? There is so much more that we can do to rarify those patient segments and therefore tailor the therapy to them uniquely. 10 years from now, I'll be 70 years old. So it's 2032, and I go to the cardiologist visit, or I go to my GP. How is that visit going to look different than the visit today? Do you envision they're going to pull out a chart that has my DNA sequence and it's going to list all the variants I have and all the genes that influence cardiovascular biology? Going to my doctor 10 years from now, what's going to be different? First of all, there's going to be a lot more information that you're going to be armed with going into your cardiologist's office. Let's call it a risk score or a standard test that's done. So instead of it just being a fasting lipid panel and standard blood chemistries, it will be a particular panel geared towards understanding your unique risk. And so maybe the conversation will be based on this test result that's been validated. It looks like the three main drivers of cardiovascular risk for you, Ray, happen to be this, that, and the other thing. To best manage you, I'm going to put you on this, that, and the other medicine, because that's what you're going to benefit from the most. The other medicines that had been generally applied before, maybe they're not going to be so well-suited for you. So you can dispense with the other, say, five or six medications that would have come to you in a bundle as just a generic management strategy for cardiovascular risk. That's not just going to help the interaction between the patient and the physician. It's going to benefit our healthcare delivery system as well, because this really points to more efficient management of the patient. This has been a lot of fun. The field is moving very fast. New targets are constantly being identified, and my group is, is developing medicines against them. We're handing them off to you. I look forward to continuing that partnership as we use human data to develop new medicines to really have beneficial impact on people's cardiometabolic health. Thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you, Ray. Thank you for listening to the Human Data Era. Thanks again to Nariman Hornarpur. Vice President of Global Development at Amgen. To dive further into this topic, please join Amgen scientists at the Human Data Q&A webinar discussion on November 16th, 2022. Register for the event at the link provided in the episode notes. By assessing human data, clinicians and drug developers can design therapies that address an individual's unique needs. In the next episode of the Human Data Era, we'll talk to Kauri Stefansson, founder and CEO of Decode Genetics, but the future of precision medicine. To keep up to date with this podcast, 
Follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to The Scientist Lab Talk wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains forward-looking statements that are based on the current expectations and beliefs of Amgen. All statements other than statements of historical fact are statements that could be deemed forward-looking statements, including any statements around the potential science and innovation of genetics and drug discovery. Forward-looking statements involve significant risks and uncertainties, including those described in the Securities and Exchange Commission reports filed by Amgen, including our most recent annual report on Form 10-K and any subsequent periodic reports on Form 10-Q and current reports on Form 8-K. Unless otherwise noted, Amgen is providing this information as of the date of this podcast and does not undertake any obligation to update any forward-looking statements contained in this podcast as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. No forward-looking statement can be guaranteed, and actual results may differ materially from those we project.